part memoir, part meditation and part manifesto, the respondent is a portrait of perhaps the most misunderstood aspect of the American judiciary, family law. It's the one branch of our legal system that doesn't provide a presumption of innocence, has no due process and no executive oversight. It's also a guidebook and hopefully a somewhat indispensable read for not only parents, but all and everyone interested in learning about the massive overreach and unrelenting brutality of family law. I didn't want to write The Respondent. I had to. I wrote it to let my children know that I'd not abandoned them, and to tell other similarly situated parents that they are not alone. And perhaps most of all, I wrote it to ring the alarm bell about a broken system and call for social change and family law reform. On March 5th, 2015, the cartel of family law showed up on my doorstep, stole my freedom, kidnapped my children, and murdered my family. I am the respondent, and this is my story. There was a camaraderie there that I don't think I share with anyone on earth because it was sort of like, we were, in many ways, we were sort of like, if I can do a Star Wars reference on you, we were sort of like the Jedi Master and the Padawan for a long time. But I think we both felt a little more of like, oh, we're, we're kind of equals now. I'm not Jordan's intellectual equal in any way whatsoever. I think I can translate a lot of those ideas and, and make them more, maybe more accessible to a certain amount of people. But I think that we sat there with a real like, like I could tell how happy he was that I've continued on the journey. And I think he absolutely knew how happy I was that he's back and he's strong and all of those things. So it was really, I, I came home and I was just like, it's been good. It's been a life worth living, man. He's an American political commentator and creator and host of The Rubin Report, a political talk show on YouTube with over 1.5 million subscribers. And he's just released a new book, Don't Burn This Country, Surviving and Thriving in Our Woke Dystopia. This week, Dave Rubin is the respondent. How do we hold space? extract meaning to America's most eloquent commentators. Why not? In this era of cancel culture. Simply because they think that it is censorship. How should we now respond? They just threw something on fire, Chris, a firecracker. Dave Rubin, welcome to The Respondent. Thank you for being on. Greg, it's good to be with you. I won't say what we talked about before we started here, but you're in an interesting part of America right now, a part I have a little history, and I'll leave it at that. And good luck up there, well, wherever thank that you. may be. <laughs> you're very kind. I am up there. Um, we'll see. <laughs> so so listen, we, we, you grew up in a, a fairly secular Jewish household, I'm told, in Long Island. Started yep. your career in comedy, doing stand-up and attending open mics in New York City. In 1999, you became an intern at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Just curious, what's your opinion of Jon Stewart now? Well, it's a little mixed up because when I was on, when I was interning for The Daily Show in 99, it's hard for people to remember that The Daily Show existed for a couple years before it became the cultural institution that The Daily Show became for about 20 years. And then in the last, say, three years or so since John stepped away, I guess it's maybe even more than that now, five or six years, where Trevor Noah has taken over, where it's sort of irrelevant again. It's one of the weird things that's happened. You know, there's a lot of things that happen in the country that culturally 
Uh, they happen right in front of our eyes, but you're kind of not allowed to talk about or nobody really references. One of the weird ones is that The Daily Show was this cultural force. Some people would say a force for good, some people would say a force for bad, but it was a cultural force without question, you know, for 15 or 20 years. And everybody kept saying, what did they always say about The Daily Show? It's where all young people get their news. More young people get their news from The Daily Show than anywhere else. Uh, but then the second Jon Stewart left and Trevor Noah took over, nobody watches it anymore. You'd never see a clip of The Daily Show go viral. Nobody really cares about it anymore. But anyway, for when I was there in 99, uh, you may remember that there was another host of The Daily Show before Jon Stewart, actually. There was a guy by the name of Craig Kilborn, and Craig was a former ESPN Sports Center host. He eventually ended up hosting The Late Late Show on CBS. He had just left when I t uh, started interning there, and I was doing stand-up in New York City at night and I would commute in from my parents' house on Long Island. And on the off days when I wasn't interning, not to brag, but I was an assistant manager of Electronics Boutique, which uh, you may now know as GameStop, the video game store. And I was doing all sorts of odd jobs and bartending and waiting tables and all the stuff that you do when you're trying to make it. Um, but it was an interesting time to be there because Craig Kilborn and Jon Stewart were very different. So, you know, Craig was all about himself. John was very self-effacing. So they were firing a lot of people. There was a lot of upheaval, upheaval over there, but also the show wasn't the Daily Show yet. It was just this kind of fledgling thing on this weird Comedy Central that nobody knew what it was. Anyway, then John became what I often say about Bill Maher, sort of the standard bearer of American liberalism for you know, 15, 20 years or something. And then unfortunately, and I think this is why you're asking me the question, you know, what's happened to him in the last couple of years, you know, he dipped out for like five years and that's just fine. I think he got a farm somewhere in upstate New York or something and he works with old animals, if I'm not mistaken. And that's just great, by the way, wonderful. And he had every right to disappear and whatever. But then he came back, you know, a year ago or so and suddenly he went from being, and this is the story of my life, a decent liberal to a sort of crazy wokester and constantly screaming about white people and white privilege and all of the leftist nonsense. And I'm happy to report, if I'm not mistaken, his show on, was it on Apple TV or wherever it was, where they gave him probably 10 or 15 million bucks, nobody watched and I'm pretty sure it's off the air. So he sort of got what he deserved. I, I mean, this is something that's very sad to me in a way that so many of my liberal friends uh, they go off the deep end and they become woke and then wokeness destroys them. It's, it's very weird. We would hope that, that people would awaken from the, the drinking too much Coca-Cola. But I think um, John clearly spent a lot of time uh, in upstate New York on that piece of land um, milking the Coca-Cola. But anyway, your, your career has been an amazing traje trajectory for quite some time now. You finished, I think you just finished a month and a half on tour. Did you ever imagine being, um, you'd be a Floridian interviewing the governor <laughs> of your home state and calling him gay to his face? <laughs> so that was the last stop on our tour. That was last week in Orlando. And you know, all these people, you can't say gay in Florida and all this stuff. And it's like, man, you know, I've, I've met DeSantis now a few times since I've moved to Florida six months ago. And it's funny, cause I lived in Cali for eight years. I was an enemy of the state in Cali. I, that's really what I felt like. I felt like I was fleeing hostile territory. I moved to Florida. I felt a massive weight lift off my chest. Suddenly I'm being invited to the governor's mansion. I've, I've, you know, I'm friendly with the mayor here in Miami, Francis Suarez, who is absolutely awesome. And he is almost single-handedly responsible for relocating all of the good parts of the tech world from San Francisco to Miami, the non-woke uh, parts of the tech world that exist. And, the, and Miami's absolutely flourishing, but Florida obviously is 
flourishing in large part because of DeSantis, but that's only because fortunately a certain amount of people voted the right way. I mean, I went up there with him and there's about a thousand people in the crowd and it was obvious to me, what am I gonna do first? Well, I have to say gay to the don't say gay guy. And his response was pure laughter and it was just great. And the guy is not a homophobe and this stupid bill uh, has nothing to do with don't say gay. If the media was honest, and obviously the media is not honest, they could have just as easily called it don't say straight because the point is you don't want teachers privately talking to kindergartners through third graders about sex or gender or gender identity or sexuality, and then not reporting that back to the parents. That's regardless of whether the teacher was gay and the kid was straight, or the teacher was straight and the kid was gay, and or whatever combination, male, female, all of that stuff. So the media decided to run with this thing as if he's a homophobe. And it's like, man, a minute before that, that moment that you're talking about, he was backstage with me and my husband congratulating us on having twins, uh, two kids that are on the way. And it's like, man, they just lie about absolutely everything. It is amazing. You were inches from his face and he didn't, I think you even said he didn't even flinch. It was just a, he didn't such flinch. a fun moment. He didn't, I yelled um, it too. I kind of, I went like this, you know, to kind of freak him out. He didn't flinch. <laughs> That's the thing as well. It's like you can you can disagree, and I'm not saying you do, but people can disagree with someone's politics and have a civil discourse and just, you know, get along with him. He's 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 a nice, you know, it seems like a nice, decent bloke. You know, someone you want to have a pint with. But hey ho, I guess some, um, you know, certain people are just demonized in America just because of their beliefs or political beliefs. You've you've um you've been on record stating that how much Jordan Peterson, uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, has helped your career and how much you admire him. Is is he like a favorite uncle to you? And and of the loosely connected group of folk uh, that were or as known as the IDW, of which you're considered one of the originals, I think. Who would you say is most influenced your thinking the most, Jordan, Eric, or Brett uh, Weinstein, uh, Gadsad, Ben Shapiro? Um, Oh, well, it's by, it's by far Jordan, by far Jordan. I mean, I toured with Jordan for a year and a half, you know, basically all of 2018 into 2019. We did about 120 shows in 20 countries. You know, that was the height of 12 Rules for Life. And as you said, the whole IDW, the intellectual dark web thing was blowing up. You know, it was pretty much born in my garage because that's where I was bringing everybody in and had Jordan and Ben and Eric and Brett and you know the whole crew and it was all they were all coming into the garage like this in Sherman Oaks right that was my garage in Sherman Oaks I'm just gonna in the garage this is the this is the only space I have to actually facilitate a studio and put these cameras here and and it grew and grew was that the kind of that that really was it that was it you know I'll tell you something funny I walked into that house it was the first house that I've that I've ever bought. I'm now on my third house because when the riots happened in LA, I had to move from that Sherman Oaks house because the rioters were going right by my house and it was not safe. So I thought for a little while I could move to another place in LA and be safer, but LA just went down the, the, you know, the hell in the handbasket situation. So now I'm on my third house. I think this will be my, my long lasting house here in the free state of Florida. Uh, But yeah, that, when I walked into that house for the first time, We opened the front door and immediately when you open the front door to the right was the garage door. I opened the garage door. I looked up, I saw high ceilings. I didn't even look at the rest of the house. I said, this is the house because I wanted high ceilings because I wanted to build a proper lighting grid so that we could build a, you know, a a real TV studio. And that's exactly what we did. And, uh, can I curse on this show? Do I have full language? Go Uh, ahead. Yes. Uh, well, Tucker Carlson walked into my house, into my studio, and this is the highest paid guy in television, in cable news history highest rated show in cable news. He opens the door to my garage and he goes, Dave, holy fucking shit, you did it. 
because I had everything right in my house and it was just because I, I guess I kept my head on straight and I, I figured out where the lay of the land was and where the new horizons were and all those things. But as far as your question, Jordan, you know, first off, being on that tour where, you know, it's not like you go on a tour with a comedian or you go on a tour with a musician or, or a magician and it's like people see the act and that's kind of all that it is. Jordan was straightening out people's lives in such an incredible way, whether it was getting them off drugs, getting them reconnected with family, getting themselves so that they could stand up straight with their shoulders back and, and be better with their spouses or finally find a spouse or, or stop drinking as much or stop being abusive or stop being the subject of abuse, whatever the litany of human problems there are, thousands of people were showing up every single night and the guy gave a different lecture every single night. You know, I was there to open up the crowd and get everybody laughing and have fun and we'd do the, the Q&A together at the end. But it was like, it really was like being around something that I, I was very aware of it the whole time, how special it was. Every moment around it, I kept thinking, man, I don't know that there's ever been anything like this before and I don't know that there'll be anything like it again. It really was so exceptional. But the things that he was talking about were things that I started incorporating more into my life. I mean, one of the things, I think we're gonna to get to this in a little bit, because I know you focus a lot on fatherhood. Um, you know, he was often talking about the importance of being a parent while we were on that tour. It was one of the consistent things that came up. What he would often say that, you know, for most people, not everybody, he would always make the exception, not everybody, but for almost everyone, almost every human being, being a parent is an integral part of life to live a fully actualized, realized life. And although that there are exceptions to that, he kept saying that every night. And at the same time, my husband was at home and you know, this is, we're, we're across the pond. You know, we're, we're in Ireland at times, we were in Sweden, we were in England, all over the place. I knew he wanted kids. I kind of didn't. I also, because, because of being gay and I'm 45 now, I never grew up thinking of anything related to family or marriage or anything. I, I never thought about the future in a weird way. It, it wasn't something that, that, was, that existed in a bizarre sense. So I'm listening to Jordan talk about this and here I have my, my life partner talk about this stuff and that helped me put those pieces together. So, you know, it, it's funny cause you said, uh, I think you said who helped you the most professionally but really it was, it was the personal side of it with Jordan that then because, I, because he helped me in that sense put those pieces together or in his sense, take some of the chaos and make some order out of it, that helped me personally. And then once you get the personal stuff, then the professional stuff gets a lot easier. So it's Jordan by far. Mm, I love that. He, he's really done astonishing work for so many people. And it's, it's a real travesty that he's been vilified in certain aspects of our culture and society. Uh, he's out there saving lives. I mean, you know better than most. You've witnessed it. You've seen it. You've spoken to the people um, that, whose lives he's affected through his work, through his writing. And he just seems like a very decent, man of integrity who's authentic um, and doesn't apologize for himself, but then we let me Let me tell you one other thing about Jordan. I just, cause I just saw him a few days ago. He was in Miami for a couple of days and he called me and he said, you wanna have dinner tonight? And of course I dropped what I was doing and, and we went, it was just the two of us. And you know, unfortunately now because of his profile, he has to have security guards with him. And we, we went out to dinner quite early because he doesn't wanna go to restaurants when it's jam packed. Not because he doesn't like when people say hi to him. I, I've never, I've met a lot of famous people, a lot of influential people. He is the most gracious 
by far. I mean, there's nobody even close. He will talk to everybody, ask them their name, shake their hand, look them in the eye, give them the time. It does not matter if he's got, well, I was going to say if he's got a spoonful of soup, but you know, he only eats meat. So it doesn't matter if the tomahawk is going right into his mouth, he will put it down and, and give them that attention. But he has task, he does have to manage his life a little bit differently now because of, of the, the star power attached to it. Uh, but we had about three hours, just the two of us, and uh, we had seen each other about six months ago, but before that it had been quite some time because obviously he had, he had dipped out a little bit with health problems. And there was a real, there was a camaraderie there that I don't think I share with anyone on earth mm. because it was sort of like, we were, in many ways, we were sort of like, if I can do a Star Wars reference on you, we were sort of like the Jedi Master and the Padawan for a long time, but I think we both felt a little more of like, oh, we're, we're kind of equals now. I'm not Jordan's intellectual equal in any way whatsoever. I think I can translate a lot of those ideas and, and make them more, maybe more accessible to a certain amount of people. But I think that we sat there with a real like, like I could tell how happy he was that I've continued on the journey. And I think he absolutely knew how happy I was that he's back and he's strong and all of those things. So it was really, I, I came home and I was just like, it's been good. It's been a life worth living, man. That's great. He's, he, well, I'm so glad that you got to spend that time with him. Uh, what a journey the two of you have been on. Uh, I talked with another Jordan, Jordan Hall, who came on The Respondent recently, and we discussed the, the kind of uh, the framework, uh, the rise of what he calls the red church and the crumbling of the blue church. And we seem to be in the middle and have been in the middle of this uh, huge cultural sh shift recently. And you left California. So many people I know have left California and migrated away. What was the proverbial Newsome straw that broke the California back for you? Was it homelessness, <laughs> high taxes, high crime, vaccine passports, mass conformity, the list goes on, not being able to get a table at the French Laundry um, in the height of COVID. What was it for you, Dave? Oh, I got one better, brother. Uh, three <laughs> days after the recall election, when I had campaigned with Larry Elder to get rid of Gavin Newsom, I got audited by the state. How about that? Whoa. How about that? So yes, homelessness, And check. you don't think that was just random? You think that, you think that was... This is what these people do. They use the levers of the state to punish their opponents. It is what wow. they do. Now, our, my books are clean. We do everything on the up and up. So it was dealt with very quickly. I've got good business managers and all that stuff. That was the final, final straw. My feeling, look, I had mm. wanted to, I had been for, for basically since COVID started, about two weeks into COVID, I realized nothing was going back to normal. And I also realized very quickly, and you can see if you watch my old shows, I mean, I'm very proud to say I was very early on that. What, you know, everyone kept saying the new normal and two weeks to flatten the curve. After two weeks, I was like, no, 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 something is wrong. This ain't going back to normal. Too many people are saying more, more, more. Thank you, sir, may I have another? I mean, we just watched the whole thing just endlessly move on us and people begged for it. They begged for their own destruction. It was incredible. And there was a particularly perverse version of it in a place like Los Angeles, because as you know, Los Angeles actors, it's a bunch of conformists. That's what it is more than anything else. It's an industry based on conformity. So there were people begging can I put six masks on, please? Can I inject myself 18 times, yeah. all of those things? And there yeah. was an endless misery in all of those things. My feeling was, I was very frustrated, but one night I had, do you know Michael Knowles over at the Daily Wire? Do yep. you know him by any chance? So Michael no, who works no, with, yeah. with uh, Ben Shapiro over at the Daily Wire. So he and his wife came over for dinner during COVID. We had an illegal dinner party at my house and we sat there and we're having dinner. We're having some lamb chops. 
And we agreed over, I was drinking tequila, he was drinking whiskey. We agreed we were gonna stay and fight. We were gonna fight to save California. The, the next morning, I kid you not, the next morning, the Daily Wire announced they were moving to Tennessee and he moved <laughs> with them. He texted me, he said, sorry, man, I wasn't sure. And I said, you know what, I will fight. I will fight for this recall. I fought for the recall. I campaigned with Larry. It was exhilarating. It was worth my time. I believe that fighting the good fight is a worthwhile venture. Uh, but then three days later, the, the audit happened. And I had already felt, mentally, I think I was gone already. I, you know, when you're living in a place that is so out of whack with what your beliefs are, uh, you can sometimes not realize how you're sinking in the quicksand because it happens slowly. It's not as if every day someone is showing up to your house with a knife trying to stab you and then it's like, okay, now I gotta get going. But there's a slow shaving away of the goodness, mm. of the happiness, of all of that stuff. And once the audit happened, I literally, I called my real estate agent, I said, sell the freaking house. I don't care what you sell it for. You and we done. actually ended up selling it for less than I could have because I just wanted to get out quickly. Wow. And the, I, I remember looking, uh, the, the DA, I think in, in LA is George Gascon, right? Yeah. He, he, um, he took, uh, San Francisco, the streets of San Francisco to, uh, well, what, I mean, what a mess. It's like, you know, there's the part of this mass exodus and he's now the, the, uh, DA of LA and we've got Gavin Newsom who's been gutting California for years now. And it looks like he's getting reelected. Why do Californians continue to keep electing these people? Um, I mean, I'm a fine one to talk. I mean, the governor, a governor of New York, um, Pelosi and waiting, I think you call her Kathy Seward. Kathy Seward. The pronunciation is correct. Kathy Seward. Um, she spouts comments at press briefings that sound literally bonkers. She, she sounds Kathy, nuts. <laughs> let me tell you, as someone that was born in New York, my parents still live in New York. My brother and his family still live in New York. I got a lot of family in New York. Um, I would like them to leave. That woman is insane. She was not elected. You know, she obviously, she replaced yep. Andrew Cuomo after they forced him to step down. Um, I think that she is sort of the worst of, of what the Democrats have become. She is a total authoritarian. She's cracking down on free speech right now and trying to get you know censorship ramped up via big tech. Um, she was a complete uh, vaccine, I, well, I called her a vaccine hoe. I'm trying to temper oh. my language a bit for some <laughs> reason, you know, and a mandate hoe basically. Um, she's, she's just terrible, but, but to the question of why, okay, so why Newsom or why Kathy uh, Hochul, why these people? Why would they still vote for them? I think there's a couple things at play here, but leftism as it exists in America today, progressivism and sort of the ruling set of cultural ideas, they have so wrought destruction over, over anything that is rational and thoughtful and filled with nuance. And they have convinced half the country basically that their intellectual opponents are racist and bigots. It, it's such a, it's so, it's so obvious that you have to, as Jordan would say, give the devil his due here. It's like, man, they created something that you may hate what it's done. And I certainly do, and I think you do as well, but you have to give the devil his due. It's like, man, they freaking did it. Nobody thought you could wreck all of the universities within 10 years, but they did it. Nobody thought you could ruin all of our cultural institutions uh, in 10 years, but they did it. Nobody thought you could basically demolish all of the blue cities and turn New York City and San Francisco and LA and Seattle and Portland into dystopian nightmares, but they did it. 
So it's almost- And they created whole industries for themselves. I look at Robin D'Angelo, who gets paid $25,000, dollars $40,000 for giving speeches to black people about how weak they are. It's and a pretty how sweet gig if you can get it. I mean, come on. I mean, look, we both voted for President Obama. Yeah. Like you, I also became disenfranchised or disenchanted, I should say, with him. We have this teleprompter president who clearly has been in cognitive decline for some time now or had a stroke or something. Either that or he's a drip feed of, of vodka pumping, you know, into his veins 24-7 <laughs> because he hardly, hardly string a cohesive sentence together. Yeah. Who do you see as the best hope to become our next president? Is, do you, would you say DeSantis because yeah. of... Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the easy answer is DeSantis because he is doing not only doing what I think are all of the right things, almost without exception. He has an incredible respect for the Constitution. He has an expect uh, a respect for the rule of law. Having gotten to know him a little bit, and even before the show that I did with him in Orlando, we sat in the green room, just the two of us, for about twenty minutes, and then a couple of my staff members came in and he chatted with everybody. He had even read my book, and I know he read my book because I introduced him to my staff and I said, oh, this is my associate producer, Phoenix. And he goes, oh, that's Phoenix. He's the one in the book, right? I mean, the guy, he's, he's thoughtful, he's interesting, he's not playing around and it's not gonna get better than this. So uh, for California governor, who would you pick for California? Would you pick someone like The Rock? I mean, do we go back to no, Arnold the thing days? Is Cal we yeah, California, I just have no hope for California. Look, we're talking one day after the California primary. The, the turnout was extremely low but Gavin Newsom got 1.4 million votes. Uh, the Republican, uh, who's gonna go up against him in the general in November, got about three, 340,000. And then Do you the even know his name? Uh, I don't even know his name, honestly. <laughs> Neither do I. There and you then go. Schellenberger, right? Michael Schellenberger. So, but do you know how many votes Michael Schellenberger got? I don't know. 68,000. Was it 68 or 64? I, th 60, wow. I think it was 64,000. So think about that. Michael Schellenberger, this is a decent guy. I've had yep. him on my show a couple of times. He's come to my house for dinner. I mean, this is a thoughtful, decent guy who cares deeply about California. He, he's trying to be the good liberal, the old school liberal, right? The Bill Maher liberal. And he got 68,000 votes. This is what I would say is the, to get to, you mentioned the IDW before. One of the things that I think has kind of broken down the IDW is that the split sort of became not right versus left, or conservative versus liberal, something like that, or red-blue even, it became, do you think liberalism can survive or not? Or what's the best way to make liberalism survive? I think myself and Jordan came to a similar conclusion that we are certainly more on the liberal side of conservatism, but there's richness on the right. There's a richness on the right of a libertarian argument and a conservative argument and a disaffected liberal that you can call all of that a modern conservative. Right, which is why a guy like me can support somebody like Ron DeSantis. Or you can do it the other way, and I don't mean this as an attack on Schellenberger at all. He fought the good fight, that's admirable. It does not work. The proof is in the pudding. So at some point, if you just keep doing things that don't work, maybe you have to look over to the right and go, oh boy, those conservatives, they're not nearly as bad as they've been made out to be. And oh my God, the scariest one for all the, the libs that can't admit it, I might be one of them. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I just had Dennis Prager on the respondent. He stated the left, the left is less uh, is the is the source of so many of our issues in America, um, and not just the hard left. He just says the left in general. But if one self critiques the left. Uh, one is called alt-right, neo-Nazi, a bigot, uh, right-wing Christian, just et cetera, et cetera. Was there a defining moment for you when you realized that the left in general, not just the hard left, 
had this incurable mind virus and you were going to make that public switch? Yeah. Well, you know, there were a few things that happened along the way. Some of them happened very publicly. You know, I had that interview with Larry Elder that everyone's seen a million times, you know, black conservative destroys libtard and, and then you know, the rest is history on that one. But what, what really was interesting was even when I was still on the Young Turks, which is a, you know, basically a far left progressive network, I started saying, guys, something's not quite right here. Why are we calling everybody a bigot and a racist? It can't mm. be. It simply, the math did not work out for me. The equation didn't work. It can't be that we're so right and they're so wrong. Like it's just too easy. It can't be that what drives Mitch McConnell, let's say, is pure racism. Like it's just not possible. And all I started saying was, hey, something's going on here. And suddenly, by all I, that's all I said. I didn't say the left is evil. I didn't say the right is great. I still had never talked. I didn't even know of Jordan Peterson. I had never talked to Ben Shapiro or Dennis Prager or any of those guys. Just by asking that question, I got an unending amount of hate from the left. I mean, unending. And then suddenly what happened was a couple people on the right started going, hmm, this guy's a, a, you know, asking the right questions. Maybe I'll talk to him. So then I thought, all right, I'm getting hate from these people across the board. I have these people who I disagree with on abortion. I disagree with on same-sex marriage. I di disagree with on the death penalty. At the time, I disagreed with even on the welfare state, which now I certainly don't, but I have some disagreements with some of them on, on certain things. But I said, okay, these guys are kind of waving over here and they're going, hey, we're over here. We're not that bad. Maybe, maybe come talk to us. And then what I do, I talk to Ben Shapiro. I talk to Larry Elder. I talk to Dennis Prager. I talk to Glenn Beck. Talk to Thomas Sowell, talk to all these guys that I was told are these scary racists and bigots. And I found them not only to be thoughtful and decent and know what they think and why they think it, but I found them to be, I think the best way I can describe it is generous of spirit, which nobody on the left is anymore. There, there is virtually none of that. Go, the thing think, I notice on the left as well is the, the, the very deep linguistic manipulation that, oh. that, that's at play. For example, critical, I remember learning about critical race theory. I had, uh, I had Chris on the show and, and, and it becomes racial sensitivity training. Defund the police becomes reimagine public safety and these violent riots a couple of years ago through COVID becomes mostly peaceful protests. Even vaccine curious, I think collective, the collective consciousness for the first time actually went, you know what? Maybe I'm curious as to what I'm being told to inject into my body, which that's, you know, that's fine. But that became anti-vax. It, in a way, it's extremely brilliant public relations, isn't it? Greg, wasn't there a book written a long time ago? I think about 70 years ago, there was this <laughs> sci-fi book written by this guy. It had something to do with 1984. Orwellian? It was Orwellian. And there was something yeah. about double yeah. speak and that they would actually change <laughs> the meaning of words so you wouldn't even know what is true. I mean, man, we are living in it right now. So yes, the way they use their linguistic tricks. I mean, look, what do they talk about all the time? What are their big two things? Tolerance and diversity. Do you find anyone tolerant on the left? I have no doubt you do, as do I. I don't do it as much anymore, but I used to all the time, even when I still considered myself part of the left, I would try to get people on the left on the show. For a certain period of time, they would come, and then eventually they wouldn't come, and then after that, they'd call me a bigot and a racist and everything else. People on the right, I mean, and, and everyone talks about this. I've discussed this with all the guys we just mentioned, and Jordan and I discussed this at dinner the other night. People on the right, you might have deep philosophical differences with. Why is it that Mike Huckabee, who is an evangelical minister who ran for president twice, 
has repeatedly tried to get me to go to Nashville to go on his show. I haven't been able to do it because I've been so busy, but why does he want me to go there? Why was I invited to Liberty University, which is the largest evangelical Christian college in the United States, I, pr- I spoke at their Sunday convocation. This is in essence- You did, but you're gay, Dave. Are you allowed to speak there? They brought a gay pro-choice <laughs> Jew to speak at their Sunday convocation. And you know what happened? I spent the rest of the day on the campus and kids hugged me and high-fived me and took selfies with me. Those are supposedly the intolerant and the people who only are trying to actively destroy me in essence are the supposed tolerant. I suspect, Greg, I'm not telling you anything you don't know on this one. No, I mean, you know, it, it makes me think of the very first episode of the respondent I had with uh, Stephen Fry who came on. And we talked about, you know, a lot of this. And ultimately, I think what it comes down to, I think Stephen said, I don't care if you're gay or straight or Jewish or Catholic or uh, what can It's how we treat each other that matters. That's really, at the end of the day, what matters. So... I have to ask, because there's a lot of fear-mongering going on in society, the frenzy whip of uh, American culture. Are you afraid of Ben Shapiro? (laughs) He's freaking me out, man. You know, you can see Ben Shapiro (laughs) in a dark alley. He can fire the yarmulke at you like a Chinese star. You got it. Seriously, though, in mainstream media, try, you know, mainstream media is trying so hard to make people afraid of social media content and platforms and creators like, like you and locals and Ben and various other different people on all sides. People like you solely because their corporate ratings are in decline. And I think Jeffrey Miller wrote, uh, I think it was this morning, if I remember, remember this correctly, why does mainstream media always talk about the gay community, but never the straight community? Why do why always the black community and never the white community? If you understand the answer to this, you understand the nature of mainstream media, right? Yeah, so first off, Jeffrey Miller, who's a former uh, guest on my show, and have you had him on? Because he's fantastic. The guy's- Not yet, the, I hope the, to. Oh, you should get him on, He's and he's a, he's a brilliant scientist. He, um, that's the point. What you just said there really is the point that what this is about, this is not about the battle of ideas like, oh, they think that our ideas are worse and that's why they're fighting us. This is a battle for views. And what's happened is they've realized they've completely lost the views and the attention and they are now going after, you get more clicks in essence by going after Ben Shapiro because you say Ben Shapiro than you would say promoting a good idea. When I was on tour with Jordan, every single day, there would be an insane hit piece written in either a local paper in another country, or you may remember the famous one front page of the New York Times. They said that Jordan Peterson is for enforced monogamy. And it made it sound like what Jordan wants is to subjugate women and force them into marriage. It was when Handsmaid Tale was huge on Hulu or whatever it's on. And it almost derailed the entire tour because of the right. firestorm that it created. Now, ironically, you'll, you'll love this one. Uh, the, the phrase enforced monogamy, if you searched on the New York Times own site, I wonder if they've changed it at this point. It had been referenced only twice before in the history of the paper, or at least in the searchable history of the paper. And both times it was positive because it was people saying enforced monogamy, meaning you're not forcing anyone to get married, to get married. But the point is that a society should create the conditions so that people can get married because the family actually is the root of society in the first place. But what happened was, and this is what happened, remember, what was it, about uh, two months ago now, remember when we had those three days where everybody was running around saying Joe Rogan's a racist? And it was like, oh, well, why? Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. Nobody then, then thought. Then it became Elon Musk when Elon Musk decided, 
Yeah. But where does nobody that come thought, from? Well, where it comes from is that nobody honestly thinks that Joe Rogan's a racist. What they do think is that Joe Rogan gets a lot of views. So it is in right. Brian Stelter and CNN's best interest to take out Joe Rogan. People are is not that the chubby guy on CNN who doesn't know too much about anything but speaks a lot. Well, that's all. I don't, of them. Watch... I don't know which one you're talking about, but Stelter's <laughs> the potato-shaped one. If that, if you're trying okay. to figure out specifically, let's attack the arguments, Dave. Yeah, not sorry, the sorry. Um... Well, he is potato-shaped. That's a that's a that's a fact, uh, you know. But <laughs> but so Leslie, we took we took touched on COVID for a moment. Yeah. So I'm pro vaccines, but Biden, President Biden, I should say, mandating medical procedures on the citizenry was Orwellian to to talk about 1984. The new diseased until proven healthy mentality became like cancel culture's guilty till proven innocent or more guilty. I went on a Fox show Gutfeld recently. I think you were on that. Yeah. And I asked this tongue twister, and I'm going to ask you, why did the protected need to be protected from the unprotected by forcing the unprotected to use the protection that didn't protect the protected in the first place. That's good. And with your accent, that's really good. Oh, it, it helps with the British accent. It, it what, you know, I, re I recently, I'd say this, I recently filmed a, a, a show. I, I get in so much trouble, but you know, that's my middle name these days because they speak my mind. But yeah, I filmed a show for a network, uh, let's say, I think it's ABC, um, The Rookie recently. And I was astonished, Dave. I thought, I, I thought that COVID, the power of using COVID as a uh, control, if you will, to regulate the masses was going to come back and it still may. And I think it probably will to certain degrees. Yeah. But my union, the Screen Actors Guild, signed these SAG protocols stating that you, my union, uh, you have to be vaccinated, uh, have your two shots and two boosters, and then get tested once every three days. So in effect... Anyone who didn't have all of that was unemployed as an actor for the rest of their careers until that protocol is changed, which staggered me that our own union could do that. Now I know why you lit up when I said that Hollywood is a uh, city of conformists. I mean, that's what it is. That's what it is. And these, you know, it, it, it is what it is, I would say. Um, as far as the COVID stuff, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm pro-vax or anti-vax. If you want to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. I did not get vaccinated. I'm in a room right now with two guys who didn't get vaccinated. I certainly had no right to tell any of my employees to get vaccinated. And, you know, it was just, it was very obvious to me from the beginning that almost everything was nonsense. None of it made sense to me from the beginning. And the way that, as I said earlier, the way that everyone was embracing the new normal, that they kept saying this phrase, the new normal, and we better embrace the new normal. And in the new normal, we're not gonna shake hands anymore. And you may not hug grandma anymore. And all of this evil, really Orwellian evil weirdness. Um, I just didn't fall for it. And you know, when they talk about misinformation, it's like it's only June of last year, uh, literally a year ago right now, that Joe Biden was out there saying, if you get vaxxed, you will not get nor transmit COVID. That was either a lie or misinformation, or he was misinformed, or he misspoke, or the teleprompter was broken, or his brain is fried, or some concoction of all of those. Um, I want to see the teleprompter read when it said, lean into camera and whisper, <laughs> get vaccinated. I want to sniff your hair. <laughs> God, what a so, freak that guy is. 
It's bizarre, isn't it? Anyway, uh, your your book, um, Don't Burn This Country, Surviving and Thriving in Our Woke Dystopia, were you really surprised that it didn't make and wasn't included in the New York Times bestseller list? I mean, Uh, you must have known. There was probably a part of you that wanted to be, because I know as a writer, that is the holy grail. But when the grey lady crumbles, you know, it's not going to happen. So, right? Yeah. I mean, look, my my first book got on the list. And at the time, you know, this is three or four years ago. It meant something to me. Not, be, But I had already thought the New York Times was pure propaganda. I really had. I mean, I, as I just mentioned, I was on tour with Jordan. They do this crazy hit piece. I knew what drivel it was. But for the first book, it felt important to me because I, I still believed in the system to some degree. I was, you know, Penguin is my publisher, Penguin Random House. They're, they're one of the big boys. My My editor, who I adore, Helen, she really wanted me to get on there because it was good for her career and, and she, you know, and I wanted her to feel that success, right? So my team around me, my agent, I want, they all want New York Times bestsellers. So I was kind of like, ah, there's this thing that I don't respect that I think is one of the biggest problems mm-hmm. that we have. And yet I want this thing from them because I want it for my other people. It felt very weird, but I did get on there. They put me on 11. I think I should have been number three by sales, but whatever. This last book, I mean, we crushed it with this book. I should have been number two in hardcover and they didn't even put me on. I didn't want it this time. If anything, when I when I right. got the call, I actually got the call from my agent. He said, Dave, no, no surprise, you didn't get on. In a way, I was like, I was ready to go with the Twitter thread about what, what you know, pure nonsense is going on over there. And the simple fact is putting aside me and the book and everything else, if the New York Times openly and brazenly will lie about a bestseller list, because a bestseller list, by definition of the word, the phrase bestseller, the implication is it's the bestsellers, the things that sold the most copies. These are facts, this is hard information, right? If they're willing to screw around with numbers that are publicly available, by the way, BookScan gives you the numbers. So it's not as if right. it's not as if the average person can't figure this out. If they're willing to manipulate a list of, na- of that nature, what else do you think they might be doing with the news? Do you think they might be doing el- something else a little weird sometimes? Am I, I do nuts? believe Am it's nuts? more than sometimes. No, I don't think you're a bag of nuts. I think um, the whole gray lady and the whole, well, news, journalism, it's, it's clear it's not about reporting the facts anymore. It's propaganda. I mean, look, it's, it's America's inhumane race to the bottom. It was about eight or 10 years ago, Dave, I started witnessing the rise of identity politics in high-level executive offices at major motion picture studios, TV networks, cables, streamers, the mission creep was so obvious to me. And I think we both agree that identity politics eventually devours itself, but it may not happen in our lifetime. But And, and America, or at least main, mainstream media in America, uh, seems to ignore what I think is the class distinction or the discussion and has this preponderance to focus solely on intersectionality with race and gender being the preeminent hot topics. I don't know how we climb out of this mess. You're giving it a valiant try um, and there are others doing the same. And I think more people are flocking to to shows like the Rubin Report and and others, but how how do you think we climb out of this mess? I, I think we disconnect from them. That's really what I believe. That means finding a nonsensorious platform. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna level with you here. Yeah. I had a I had a fork in the road moment a few years ago. I, I, you and Jordan were talking about a new platform. Yeah. And it was ThinkSpot Locals. I went ThinkSpot. I actually invested fifty thousand yeah. dollars in ThinkSpot and lost and lost big time. Um, 
And more than that, I lost the time that I could have been on a great platform like Locals. Um, where do you find, where can you be sure, I guess you can't be sure of the non-censorious nature of a platform? Because at some stage, human beings are going to make determinations on standards and practices and decide whether you get to have a platform or a voice or how much. Yeah, well, of first off, have, I'm right? sorry that the, the Think Spot thing didn't work out. I'm sorry that it didn't work out for Jordan. I'm sorry that it didn't work out for you. And 50 grand, no matter how much you have, is not fun to lose and all that stuff. You know, what happened with Jordan and I on Think Spot and Locals is that he had had this very rudimentary thing with ThinkSpot that we thought maybe could start becoming something. We agreed to kind of do it together. And then sort of very quickly on, I realized it's not exactly the direction that I had wanted to go. I had this other idea for what ultimately became Locals. And unfortunately, really what happened was that Jordan then got sick. And when Jordan got sick and was MIA, uh, I wasn't able to communicate with him about what my misgivings were with the direction they were going with it. I, I don't think Jordan would have a problem if I was saying this to you, so, or publicly, it's fine. And it all worked out, and trust me, he's extremely happy for what ended up happening with locals. But I just felt I wanted to make it work, but especially without Jordan being involved, I felt like I just couldn't. So then I went off and I, I basically did locals on my own. And then you know a year and a half later, we eventually merged with Rumble and, and things have been very good. Uh, but to your direct question about what do you do when, when the censorship stuff starts coming, our, our position, and I should mention, I'm not, I don't control locals anymore. So we merged with Rumble. I'm an advisor to the company and I obviously own a, a certain percentage of it, but I don't control the company. Uh, but I am staying on board basically to guide just this, the public policies related to speech and censorship and all that stuff. Our position is to, is to be a neutral platform. And if you are breaking the laws of the United States, so if you publicly threaten to murder somebody or something that is in a, a broken law of the United States, not Pakistan and not, you know, not even the UK, uh, then you have a oh, bigger, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> then, then you have a bigger problem than us. Then obviously we'll take that stuff down, but beyond that, we will not take stuff down. Now there are moments Great. we've had very few of them, by the way, but there have been moments when people get as close to that line as possible. And then we've had to talk about it, but I can tell you this in my locals community in, in, which has been up now for over two years. Uh, one of the things that we do that I, I think we did two things that are really cool related to speech. Well, first off, you have to pay a couple bucks to get in. Everyone, everyone sets their own fee to get into your community. But if you come into my community and you're just saying awful stuff and how much you hate me and you're throwing racist memes up there and you're a white supremacist or a black supremacist or a gay supremacist or whatever, I can kick you out of my community, but you can still be in anyone else's locals. So what that allows is a certain, A, once you have someone put even something in for a nickel, if you literally charge only a nickel to get in, people behave better. That's how it is. Skin in the game. That's it, a little, and, and I mean it quite literally, a, a nickel would get rid of 90% of the problems. So that's one mm. thing. But then the other thing is, by treating the communities separately, as opposed to Twitter where it's all one thing, Facebook, it's all one thing. By treating the locals' communities separately, if I kick you out of my community just because I don't like you, well, first, if you can say mean things about me all day long and I can make money off you, maybe I'll leave you in there. But if I've just had it with you, I don't like what you're bringing to my community, I'm not kicking you off the platform. Go do it on someone else's community. And then if they don't like it, they'll kick you off. So I think we tried to treat it as sort of congruently as most of us live. In other words, you can say whatever you want about me outside of my house. I can't do anything if you're on the street screaming about me, but I don't invite you in for lunch to say all those things. 
So, so we just did it the best way that we knew how. And, uh, you know, ThinkSpot, I think there was a real opportunity there, but with Jordan's health, it just, uh, it just, it, a startup is freaking hard, man. It really is. Yeah, it is. Well, congratulations on the success of Locals. Long may it continue. Let's Thank talk you. fatherhood and family for a bit. Sure. Uh, you have two babies on the way, correct? <laughs> I do, man. I got two months left. Are you showing yet? I mean, I'm showing, but when, I don't think it's because of pregnancy. When is the gender reveal party, and will you well, be assigning that gender? You know, at we're birth? gonna we're gonna let the kids decide. <laughs> and if one if one or both is a girl as they grow up, how will you explain to them they, her, she's as as Ed Wright said, Fred, insert pronoun at will, what a woman is, Dave? Greg, I'm not a biologist, but uh, uh, <laughs> very good. Yeah. Uh, Supreme Court notions there. Um, so the breakdown of the family unit. Seriously though, um, I want to talk about that because I, I, it is part of what I've been talking about for, gosh, a couple of years. And I write about it in my book, The Respondent. America is the world leader in, in children growing up in single parent households. And I believe that the greatest threat to Western civilization is the breakdown of the family unit. Social, social ills and public policy stem from the health and well-being of our familial bonds, if you will. So you're about to become a father. And at a time when, when I guess fathers are bombarded and have been bombarded and men in general by messages about the deeply corrosive effects of toxic masculinity. We're confronted with these institutions now, psychologically conditioned mm -hmm. to think that masculinity is toxic. The answer is not to smash the matriarchy, obviously, or virtue signal toxic femininity. Um, demonizing masculinity is not, never had or should have been the solution. It's the problem. What do you worry the most for the future of your children? Oh, that's a good one. Well, I always, so my husband's name is David also, which can confuse a lot of people, but I, I always say to him that it's funny because I think one of the reasons that we operate well, and we've been together for about 13 years, um, uh, is that basically he, he is always worried about sort of the, the little things of the day, like making sure that our day is right and the, the things going on in our house and we have a lot of construction going on. He's managing a lot of things, our day-to-day -day things. And that's what he's, at the end of the night when we lay down and we're like recapping our day, it's like he's, dealing with all of those things. Well, what happened with this thing and what's going on with our employees and this, that, the other thing. I'm always worried about the big things. Like to me, I'm worried about the fall of Western society. I'm worried about, is Iran <laughs> gonna get the bomb? I'm worried about- That's, that, rem that reminds me of um, Surya McGilchrist, who was on the show, left brain and right brain, left brain closing down to a certainty, the details, details, and the right brain opening up to possibilities and the bigger picture. So it's the Dave, of the right brain and the David it's, of the left exactly. brain. Exactly, that's pretty much what it is. So, but I think that's why we work together and it's why we've been able to build several good businesses and a good life together and all of these things. I mean, because we view the world, we have our sort of big blue sky stuff is very similar in what we want out of life, but the way we operate within the world is very different and opposites attract and then you can hopefully build something together. That's the idea. Um, so in terms of the worries for the kids, I mean, my worries really are everything that we've discussed here that, uh, I want to hopefully bring them into a world that is roughly the world that I lived in for most of my life, the world that you lived in for most of your life. How old, how old are you? 54. 54, so I'm 45. So we're, we're roughly the same age. You know, you're, you're sort yeah. of, you're, I would say, you, that's like right at the top of Gen X basically, right? So we're about 55 yeah. is sort of top. I'm like right in the middle of Gen X and then down is a little bit below. But we're, we're obviously like right basically at the same. All of our references are gonna, work for each other. Um, we, we grew up in a pretty great world. We grew up Gen X people who should be in charge of the world right now because we're still young enough where our brains aren't broken like Joe Biden and our bodies basically work. And yet we, and we have a little 
we have a little experience behind us, a little world weariness behind us. We should be in charge right now. Instead, we've got Biden and Pelosi and these decrepit people who cannot let go. This is, this is a major problem. I think you know that we grew up in a time that really was post-racial. It was post-homophobic or any of this nonsense. It's not to say none of that existed but it was not okay anywhere. There was no place in, I don't even mean polite society as in elite society. There was no place anywhere. It was just gone already. All of the TV shows that you and I grew up watching, whether they were the, the British version of the show or the American version of the show, no, racism was not, was not thought of as a good thing anywhere. There, it was all gone, it was obliterated. And unfortunately, mm. I think what happened to Gen X is we, we it's two-pronged. We grew up with such success and Western civilization, civilization had such success that we grew fat on the ideas and we thought that they were just gonna last forever. So we've become unable to fight for the ideas in a lot of ways because we just were, we were unfanged somehow by the, by the success. And then the other part is that the, the boomers who should have let go, as I just referenced, because they can live longer now and also because social media has made everything about you they can't let go. They think the world is still theirs to own and it's not. And look, I'm not that age and I'm not, uh, I'm not someone in that level of power, but I can't imagine, I mean, think about it this way. When Nancy Pelosi, who now she's 962 years old, she's gonna run for re-election. 63. 63, she's, she's yeah. gonna run for re-election again. And it's like, lady, <laughs> you're 80, whatever you are. She's not, is she? How's she gonna fit in visiting the nail salon without wearing a mask I, during a time of, ma anyway. Well, she doesn't have to because she's an elite. <laughs> but, but the point is, it's like, it's like, lady, go, go be a grandma. You know, try to think of your grandma, Greg. When I think of my grandmas, you know, like oh. what did they want? They wanted to feed us. They wanted to, you know, like, I don't know. Make Shrewsbury biscuits. Exactly, you know? exactly, right? <laughs> and it's like, lady, go be a grandma. Instead, you wanna just hang on to power again? Come on, yeah. people. It's, it's pretty sad. A friend of mine recently announced to our small group of friends that he's getting divorced. He had murmured over the past several years that he and his wife had been essentially living separate lives for some time. I'd viewed his marriage with more than a little doubt. However, as is so often the case, when the moment arrived, there was general dismay, even sadness. My friend had meditated a good deal about the positive consequences of leaving his marriage. The day his wife told him, and for a while after, he vacillated between joy and grief. No normal, healthy human being goes into a marriage fixating on its failure. In my own case, even while I knew my life would improve once extricated from my first marriage, when the endgame began, I felt defeated and overwhelmingly reflective. Um, we only have a few minutes left. There is a segment that I get to at the end of the show with everyone called the philosophical cue. I do want to get to that in a minute, but I, it would be remiss of me not to ask you, um, because I've spoken of marriage and family breakdown and starting a family. Did you watch any of the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial? And do you have any thoughts on the verdict? I did not watch one second of it. Literally, literally not one <laughs> second. I have, I'm honestly not even sure what happened. I guess he kind of won. That, that's sort of what I know from Twitter, maybe, sort of, or something. Um, yeah, he kind of had a resounding victory, but we can talk about that some other time. Yeah. I have to, I, you, yeah, I, yeah, I was speaking with actually Viva Fry, who I think you oh, know. I, I, Viva, I, yeah. I didn't know Viva. Yeah, came on. I had a spaces. I was talking. Douglas Murray, he and I talked about it as well. It's been a 
because the false allegation of the of the false allegation of domestic violence, particularly in in um, family law, which is the one branch of our legal system that doesn't provide due diligence and a presumption of innocence, is something that I've been talking about and pushing, you know, the the, the conversation uh, for many a year now. Um, I, I can tell story, you, I can tell you one thing about why I didn't watch that you might find interesting, which is that to do what I do for a living where I have to be in the fight all day long and knowing about all of these things and giving a certain amount of attention to things that are outside of myself or whatever it is. Uh, when this thing started and I saw a lot of people talking about it all the time, I was just like, you know what? There are some that I just have to sit out. For me to be able to be sane, to pay attention to the right things, yeah. it's not that it's not important. And certainly the issues that you just mentioned, like these are important issues, of course, but every now and again, I find, and I've done this with other stories over the years where I'm just like, this one I'm gonna basically sit out. And if there's a reason that I really have to know about it at some point, then so be it. But I just felt- Get up to speed. Yeah, it's enough. You mean you don't wake up in the morning and walk the dog and get handed a <laughs> script and do an hour of the show and then just go and, you know, do whatever you want? You know, I wake no, up in the morning, I walk high. the dog, the guy over here emails me a couple stories, we trade a couple texts, I do the show, and then I walk my dog again. Brilliant. Good for you. Yeah, it's that simple, right? No, I know it's not. Okay, so this part of the show is called the philosophical cue. It's where we go a little deeper. We get eclectic within the dialectic and we see what's in the philosophical cue. Socrates' greatest axiom was know thyself. Dave Rubin, how well do you know thyself? Let's find out, shall we, as we play cue theme music. Just kidding. A little philosophical cue. First up is called the meaning seeker. I define meaning as everything happens for a reason we make up afterwards. Where does Dave Rubin find meaning? Meaning is the thing that's driving you even when you don't know what's driving you. There is something that you're doing throughout the day uh, that is pushing you one way or another. And you're hopefully going with it and sometimes you're going against it. But if you go with it, if you go with what is intrinsically obvious to you, I think you, you, you will usually find meaning in that. Uh, a good buddy of mine says it another way, which is that basically if, if you trust your gut, you will almost always do the right thing. Uh, I don't mean the expedient thing or the good thing. You will do what is fundamentally right. And then if you trust your gut and something really bad happens, then you can review. Uh, but if you, if you do it, it will pretty much always work out and then there will be meaning in that. It's like, well, to give you a sort of more Jordan one, it's like if you kind of just look at that star in the distance and you're like, I wanna get kind of in that direction, you may not get exactly to that star but you will get somewhere probably close. I, I, you know, in my high school yearbook, almost everyone in my high school yearbook wrote that I was gonna be the host of The Tonight Show. That's what pretty much everyone wrote. Now, I didn't become the host of The Tonight Show, but I guess I became something that's sorta of close to that at some level. I think you did better than that. I, I wouldn't want to be the host, host of The Tonight show. show. So the meaning, the meaning you is- You the host with the name of your own show in the title. I even mean. better, man, <laughs> even better. So, uh, so yes, Jordan, aim at something. What's the most meaningful moment of your life? the most meaningful moment of my life. Wow. Um, ooh, that's good. Uh, well, I, I, I'll give you something, this isn't gonna be that specific, but it'll, it'll, be, it'll be sort of roughly what I've been doing for the last two months. The, going on this tour and selling out these rooms and showing up with these people and doing what I know I'm supposed to be doing. So maybe this is also an answer to your first question. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And when I'm doing it right and all cylinders are clicking, I know it's exactly right. And, and when you're doing it right, the days are long in the best sense of it. 
and you lose track of time and you go, man, a month just passed and it was pretty freaking good. And then sometimes you fall out of that and then you got to struggle to get back into it because nobody really does it forever, you know? But mm -hmm. I would say basically what I've done for the last couple months where I've really been focused on what I'm doing and trying to get better at it consistently, um, also with the backdrop of that my life is really about to change and fatherhood's on the horizon and all of that. Uh, yeah, it's something like that. Uh, penultimate question. If you could write your own epitaph, what would you want it to say? He did it his way. That's a, that's a slight you... offshoot of Sinatra, I did it my way, but that's the idea that, you know, I did it my way, I did what I thought was right. I think for the most part, it's turned out good. I, I don't think I have, I have a lot of enemies of meaning people that don't like me, that don't know me, but I don't think I've burned a lot of bridges. I think I've built a lot of good things. I think I treat people basically good. And uh, that's that. Yeah, I think you are. You are in many degrees uh, an enlightened trailblazer and an urbane pioneer doing it your way. Uh, if you had one wish, what would it be? A little more bravery for people. A little more bravery. Mm. If we could just maybe mm. up the bravery 10% across the board, I think that's all it would take. I love that. Dave Rubin, it's been a veritable delight to have you on The Respondent. Greg, it's been a pleasure. Uh, locals, I know we were trying to make this happen for a while. I'm glad that it finally yeah, worked out. Me too. Locals, YouTube, everywhere books are sold, apart from the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> Where can people see and hear more Dave Rubin? RubenReport.locals.com. There it is. Um, thank you, Dave, very much. Really easy, breezy, lemon squeezy. It's great to meet you and talk with you. If you ever back up near Binghamton, Come by, ride an ATV, ride a snow bike. Um, you know, there's lots of adventure to be had, had here on my 240 acres. I can't I don't think believe you have 240 acres, man. I'm going to show up. You, I'll be there for weeks. You'll have no idea. <laughs> Bring the kiddos up. Yeah. <laughs>